Welcome to The Mighty Podcast, where we infuse the health space with positivity, humor, and vulnerability. The Mighty is a safe and supportive community here to help you find the people and information you need to navigate your health journey. We're so excited to spend some time together today. Now, let's get into what the health we are talking about. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about suicide and suicidal ideation. So if this topic is difficult or triggering for you, uh, please feel free to skip this episode and check out a different one as your mental health is more important. If you or a loved one needs support right now, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. These resources and additional international resources can also be found in the episode's description. Now, let's get into it fully. My name is Ashley Kristoff. I am your mighty host, and today we're going to be talking about the topic and experiences of living with suicidal ideation. We're going to share a little bit about what it is, some common misconceptions, and some ideas on how you can support yourself or the people in your life who experience this. So to do that, I have three incredible guests here today to help dive into this topic a bit more. So I'm going to give a brief intro to all of them, and then they are welcome to share anything else that I missed. So first we have Imade, who is a writer and mental health advocate who founded Depressed While Black, a nonprofit that donates black affirming personal care items to psychiatric patients and connects people to black therapists. We are also joined by Marie Shanley of Anxiety. She is a writer, mental health advocate, and variety talk show host on Twitch. And rounding out a group is Matt Rivera. Matt's an actor, mental health advocate, and owner of keto food brand Nito Keto Food. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for being here. I'm, I'm very excited to, to talk about this very fun and light topic that we all, uh, Super. you know. <laughs> I do want to just start things off a little bit lighter so we can kind of just ease into things a little bit since we know this is going to be a little bit of a heavier topic. So to start things off for our icebreaker, my question to you is what would be the first song that you would play for an alien visiting Earth for the first time? And while you think about it, I just think about what what is your tactic? Do you want them to stay? Do you want them to leave? What, what are you thinking? I feel like I have one for all of those. Like I would play <laughs> this if I want them to go away, depending on, you know, are they coming in? Are they nice? Like, do I want to hang around them? Because then I'll probably like, I'd probably give them some Jack Johnson to be like, this Ooh. is this is the the best, the kindest, the brightest, like just mellow out and enjoy hanging out with me, you know? Whereas if I if I didn't like them, man, I like don't want to be mean to any band. <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted them to leave, I would play any song that any influencer has attempted to create and popularize. <laughs> Love Wait, Nickelback, right? Oh, sure. Nickelback. Yeah, let's okay. go with that. Yeah, everybody hates Nickelback. <laughs> but if I okay, I can to stay. <laughs> I feel like I would show them some K pop just to confuse them <laughs> and be like, okay, interesting. I like the idea that this is a round robin now and like they get one from each of us and they're like, I don't know what to make of this planet. This is very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would probably play Beyonce to just kind of let them know what it is. Like, Beyonce runs this planet. Like, you're just going to have to adjust. <laughs> if you don't like it, you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that. I like the idea of like we got that. Queen B. She's actually our ruler. It's it's kind of unofficial, but it's off. It's official at the same time. Exactly. Like, yeah. It'll be like take me to your leader, and you'll be like, oh, she lives somewhere in Calabasas, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was trying to think. I was laughing earlier because I was thinking about like I couldn't think of a specific song, but I'm like, depending on the aliens, I might want them to like not want to 
not want to bother with us and so i might try to play something that's like a like a nursery rhyme or like a little kid thing to go like this is as advanced as we got sorry like you probably <laughs> probably wouldn't want to go i'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> <laughs> whoops cool all right well thank you for sharing your songs i'm like i want to put this as a playlist now because i want to see if people could guess the origination of this playlist like the question <laughs> let's get into our topic now um so we're going to be talking about suicidal ideation and for people in our audience who don't quite know what that terminology means i just want to give a brief definition so suicidal ideation is really just the act of thinking about suicide there's kind of two sides of this there's the passive suicidal ideation where you are just really thinking about it as well as active suicidal ideation, which includes that as well as having a plan to act on that as well. So first question I have for all of you is, you know, how does this show up for you? How does this, you know, how did this come about in your life or when did you notice it? For me, I would say, I guess I started to really experience or had a concept of my own mortality when my dad passed away when I was about 19 years old. And before that, I was just kind of, you know, a teenager that was living my life, you know, with my friends and all that. And I wasn't really, you know, actively thinking about my life or my death or anything like that. So after that happened, I feel like it really set me on a path where like, you know, I would often contemplate my life or my place in the world. And I think it is also the moment when, you know, anxiety was first created within me. And I would always have these very existential thoughts of like, what is my purpose? What does anything mean? What is anything for? And I would say that is kind of the first time that I started to really question things and start to like, you know, have some deeper thoughts, and especially if I were, you know, going through a dark moment or anything like that. For sure. Thank you for sharing. I'll go ahead. So I started having suicidal ideation a little bit later in my life where like I, I remember it was a passing idea as a kid. And then I remember being a little bit older and being so overwhelmed with what was going on at home, being frustrated with constantly being told I wasn't good enough, I wasn't doing enough, I was lazy, I was useless, I was overdramatic, I was too sensitive, that I was that I was a burden, that I took up too much time. And so it just seemed like the natural thing, it almost was like a comforting thought, it feels like the solution because all you know is this awful home you live in. And I didn't want to be there anymore. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Since having talked to my therapist, I uh, like I've learned, I mean, a lot of things, but I've learned that suicidal ideation is also your my brain was also my brain's way of kind of trying to gain control back in a situation where I felt completely out of control. Um, like, you know, if if somebody in my family said, well, you're a burden and I don't want you here. A really easy thing for me felt like, well, I can fix that. I can fix that for you. I can remove myself and then you won't have to bother with me and you'll never see me. And, and then that started being almost a comforting thought when any conflict arose. Later on in my 20s, when I got really, really overwhelmed with work and I was going through like a complete breakdown, um, it was not just an option for me. It was it was a real possibility. It was like, okay, well, I think I'm checking out. The next time that that kind of thought came around is where 
I had the idea for my talk show because I was like, hey, all I want is nothing else anymore. Like I, I want these thoughts to go away. I don't want to think about this. And I remember always being scared and calling my therapist and saying like, I have these thoughts and I, I don't want to have them. I don't want to think that this is a solution because it shouldn't be, right? Like I'm talking to you, I'm taking medication. Like, why does this feel like the only way out? And then eventually, again, like my talk show came came to me because I was like, well, if I have nothing else to lose, if I'm just checking out anyway, why don't I try to do something good before I go? That ended up being the little thing that I needed to stay. And I can say that with, with all honesty, probably haven't experienced suicidal ideation repeatedly like the way I used to in like probably like three years. I mean, it's, it still can, can come. Like, it's not like it's not a thing that doesn't cross my mind ever, but definitely not at the rate that they used to. Yeah, I think you brought up a, a handful of things there that I think are really important. One of them being like your relationship with these thoughts can change over time and they can be from kind of different causes and different situations and circumstances in your life. And then the other thing that I really resonated with, this is something that I've been talking about recently, is that that thought becomes right. a habit and habits mm -hmm. are comforting. That's the reason like we we stay with them most of the time. And so right now, like that's, that's a, even a conversation I'm having is how do I create a, a habit that's a little right. bit healthier for me right. or works a little bit works a little better right. for how me than I, this one how do how do I make it how do I create a habit so that my mind doesn't jump to this like ultimate conclusion immediately when things are bad but comes a little bit less extreme a little more like oh things are really bad right now I can think about how it's going to get better I can think about the solutions I can I can think about all these things and my mind doesn't have to immediately go to I guess I'll Go away then. That's years and years of, of training and therapy. Yeah, I think my experience is similar and also a little bit different. Um, I live with borderline personality disorder that can trigger daily uh, chronic suicide ideation. So basically every day there's a thought about killing myself. Um, unfortunately, I don't match the narrative that a lot of people in Suicide Prevention Month want to promote <laughs> the the narrative that, you know, I was suicidal for two days and I'm fine and, you could, and this could happen to you too, <laughs> you know, anything can trigger me. I joke that, you know, I can like stump my toe and get suicidal, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's just unfortunately how my brain works. And, you know, I'm chuckling a little bit about it because you kind of do have to have humor um, yeah. in order to kind of live with this and manage it. I had a therapist in the past who told me that suicidal thoughts can't kill you. It may sound insensitive on the surface, but for me, it was empowering. That therapist helped me understand that being suicidal isn't something that I need to rearrange my whole life to try to fix because that can actually cause more damage to freak out every time I have a suicidal thought. It's just, it's unsustainable and it's exhausting. And I think that we do have to kind of understand the difference between passive and active suicidal ideation and the interventions that you would use for passive you won't use for active and the interventions that you use for active, you don't do for passive. So I think it's important that we really do educate folks about the difference, about the difference between having an urge and having a plan. It's very important, you know, from for my therapists and for other people to say, hey, like, I am going to listen to you. I'm going to help you get the care that you want. 
not the care that would make me less afraid because that's the situation that we deal with with people who are chronically suicidal. People give us help that makes them less afraid, but not help that we actually need. And, you know, my whole experience navigating the mental health system as a chronically suicidal person is basically dodging incarceration and being very feel fearful that mm. I'm going to get forcibly hospitalized because of how I feel. It can force you to have uncomfortable conversation with people you don't want to share your business with. And it can be really difficult. I think the under the underlining like affirmation and kind of belief that I have is that I'm worthy of care. And yeah, it takes a hell of a lot to keep me alive, a lot more than I would like. But I think that it's important for folks who are chronically suicidal to realize that we're worthy of care and we're worthy of that support, even when, you know, our brains are telling us it's not true. For sure. And I, I do just want to go off of a point you had said, just that difference between the active and passive suicidal. And, and this is going to come out during um, National Suicide Prevention Month. And I think what you're saying is like, we are really missing that nuance in the conversation, which is why we need to have these uncomfortable conversations too. I'm sure there is many other ways that the four of us would probably rather spend our time than like just chatting about suicidal ideation. But we we recognize that part of this is just understanding it a little bit better and people are a little too scared of the topic still to just talk about it kind of, I don't want to say in an emotionless way, but kind of a little bit removed from the fact of the matter and just, just being realistic to how this is presenting. Because I agree, I'm sure that we don't want people to feel suicidal anymore. And that is a wonderful, wonderful dream to have. But it's also not necessarily realistic for everyone to be there. So we need to meet people wherever they are in their journey, regardless of if they're suicidal one time in their life or every single day of their life. And I feel like it also is a intergenerational thing, especially growing up in Asian family. You know, I haven't grown up expressing my feelings or having open conversations. And it wasn't until even the past few years that I really started to open up to friends. And even one of my close friends, we went to dinner and I started to, for the first time, express, you know, that I had these suicidal thoughts and feelings. And it was such a difficult thing to do because I do have that thought of, you know, death every single day, just like you, Amade. And yeah, and it's weird because like, I still have struggles with, you know, seeking help and, you know, asking for help and even vocalizing it out loud because as we all know, it's such a sensitive topic and people just don't want to hear about let alone, you know, like someone else's mortality, because that makes them question their own. And maybe they haven't even thought of killing themselves before. And now all of a sudden, it's like up in their face, and it's making them feel so uncomfortable and so afraid to like even approach the topic in any way. It is a daily battle and a journey all the time. Yeah. And also what you need every day can be so different, right? Because you can be kind of closer to crisis mode some days and then other days it's just like Ugh, this this again like whatever move on with my life and and you don't always know how that's going to be when you wake up that day you know you just you have to kind of take it one day at a time and go like all right these are kind of my plans 
of how I deal with this. Like, this is, you know, the level I feel like I'm at. But sometimes, like, the way I put it, I always try to discuss, like, plans when I'm not in a bad headspace because I realize when I get there, I, like, the main thing that happens to me is, like, my brain kind of melts is the best way I put it. I just can't think clearly anymore. And I know I'm not going to be making logical choices. I know if someone asks me, like, do you need this? I can't say yes or no. I don't know. I am just so overwhelmed by the amount of emotion that's, like, coursing through that just, like, be being awake is as much energy as I can muster. So like it really comes in handy to like try to figure out things when you are in a good headspace or when you have a clear head so that when those situations do arise, you know without having to like spell it out because having to spell it out for everyone too in those moments can just like make it worse. It can, it can expound the feelings sometimes. Yeah, having to take care of other people when you're the one who desperately needs a reason to continue living is like it i it's almost worse it it feels it's it's like darker and it, it darkens and deepens the emotion of like i'm not needed and i'm not wanted because i have this need right now and the only reaction that people can have to it is just feel pity or i absolutely love how Imada, you said that people will um do what makes them feel less fearful that struck me so strongly because that's that's it when i am healthy i can almost like sympathize with people who don't get it because why would why would you do that it's a, such a dissonance when you feel okay even like how casually like uh you said ashley how casually we will talk about like oh yeah here's my here's my plan if i come to you and i tell you i want to kill myself uh please you know do this and this and this is what i need do not call the police like that is to be able to so rationally come up to something that is so about facing your own mortality when you're okay is so disconnecting from the experience of when you are suicidal and you just need to, for somebody to enact a plan or you just need to not feel that way anymore, whatever is going on emotionally. It's it's almost like you're two separate people, like the person who is suicidal, who has suicidal ideation, and the person who is totally okay. And I think it hurts even more when you are feeling okay to think about like, I just, I like, I, I personally and my, like, I just don't want that person to come back. And then she does. And then I'm back at square one and I'm mad and just all these emotions. And it's, I'm sorry, I went on, I think I went on like four tangents, but um, yeah, you all just made some really amazing points. Thank you. I was, I think this was during the recession, I think, and I was really struggling. A lot of my suicidality is related to unemployment and, and career struggles. I had a friend who was, you know, burst out in tears in front of me. And meanwhile, like I'm having serious suicide ideation. And it was just such a weird out-of-body experience where it's just like, I don't feel like I'm fully here in this moment because I'm super suicidal, but I also don't have the energy to perform suicidality. And that's what I think I struggle with sometimes as well. It takes energy to do a whole bunch of suicidal stuff. <laughs> you exhausting. know, like it takes a lot of, it's really exhausting. And sometimes I feel like in relationships, it feels like if we don't perform it, if we don't perform suicidality, we're not seen. That, yeah, that definitely has been a challenge for me. 
Yeah, I think it can be very difficult for, I mean, one, I think we know this whenever we talk about mental health, if someone isn't experiencing those types of like urges and feelings at any point, it's really, really hard to quantify that in a way that they are going to understand. And, you know, when you're okay, that's what they want to see. They want to see that you're okay. They don't want to see you, like no one wants to see you in crisis, including yourself. You don't want to see yourself in crisis either. But it's easier to not talk about it in those moments because they do think talking about it could make it come back or it could make it worse or it's uncomfortable or it's all of these things when, you know, in reality, just being open and honest and vulnerable as best as you can be is actually really helpful for, you know, dealing with those moments. All right. So something I do want us to chat about um, is just we talked you talked a little bit, Amade, about this, some common misconceptions about suicidal ideation. So I think we've already we started talking a little bit about the active versus passive a little bit. Is there any other misconceptions or does anyone want to expand on that one a bit more? I feel like honestly, yes, I've dealt with this like for a long time now. But I feel like there are so many unresolved things that even I, like with my own internal or ingrained stigmas, it has forced me to, you know, like not even sometimes really dive deep into my mind about it because sometimes I have those stigmas that I'm like, well, if I'm thinking about it all the time, then like maybe it's going to make me want to do it more. So I do sometimes tend to bury some of those thoughts or like I'll try to pivot my brain to be like, oh, don't think about that right now. Like go watch something completely mindless so that you can just have that distraction. Yeah, there needs to be a lot more discussion as to how we can break these ideas because if you can't really, you know, confront a lot of these misconceptions in yourself, then how can you fully heal or maybe even try to offer support to other people? So yeah, I would say that there is so much that needs to be done as far as, you know, normalizing this type of discussion and allowing individuals like myself to still, you know, understand and find some peace within the chaos of my mind. Yeah, I think that's such a good point too, because it, like, like I said, it's so overwhelming in those moments that like you can't think clearly, first of all, but like since there isn't a lot of nuanced conversation about it, it can be very hard to know what we're going through. Is this okay? Is this normal? Am I like super broken? Like, am I, you know, am I a terrible person for having all these thoughts? Because we don't talk about what happens when these things do come up. The fact that these thoughts are honestly pretty normal. Most people do have these thoughts at some point in their lives. It's just, you know, the what we're talking about today is a little bit more of the more common that we have these thoughts but people have these thoughts all the time it's completely normal it, it's a matter of like I said meeting where we are and what those actual needs are because someone like me uh, for example I didn't share but I've always been passively suicidal my entire life and I've never been actively suicidal and treating me in being actively suicidal is going to be a huge overreaction to my situation. And so we need to meet me down at a different level of going, okay, let's just de-escalate the emotions. Let's de-escalate these feelings you're getting. That is what's more important than like trying to stop you from doing a thing that you weren't actually planning to do anyway. Yeah, again, I, I feel like a few people have also touched upon the fact that suicidality, suicidal ideation can be a symptom. It is not the whole in problem of itself, it is a symptom. And I think in that, I wish more people saw it that way because then they could understand. People learn how to live with constant debilitating panic attacks. People learn how to live with when they're overstimulated and they're neurodiverse. Like people learn how to live with these 
differences of how our brains work. It's a matter of figuring out what it is. This isn't going to go away. This is going to keep coming around. So it's a matter of me knowing what to do, having the plans in place, telling other people, having all those uncomfortable conversations with other people, like, like again was said, I need to be thinking about it. And does that suck? Because like somebody without can just live without having to do that? Absolutely. But it is still a symptom. It is not the whole problem itself. You can continue living with it. You can figure out where it fits in your life. And what I want to see is more people who don't have an understanding of this seeking out a way to understand it. I'm not saying nobody does, but I, I wish more people did. And whether that's like teaching about it in health class, like, hey, there's all kinds of things that happen to your body. Some people think about suicides. I know that that's happening in some schools. People should just be aware of this. This shouldn't be a thing you seek out when you're like, oh my God, I was suicidal for a week. I can't believe I actually survived that. Do other people experience this? Let me go and look for podcasts and writing and, and, and all of that related to it. Like I want people to know that this is an active thing and that would just make it less scary. Yeah, it's, it's almost like we're talking about stigma a little bit. I know that stigma has gotten a lot better in recent years, but it is really heavily still impacting these conversations about, again, nuanced conversations about suicide, not just talking about it, but really having these deeper conversations on what it truly means, what it, you know, like you said, it's like a symptom of something else most of the time. So, you know, are there other ways in which stigma has kind of showed up in the way you've talked about it or like the way when you were kind of coming to terms with this, did it prevent you from getting help at all? I'm just, I'm curious about your experience with stigma. I think what has happened, yeah, like I definitely internalize a lot of it and never vocalized much of it. I still am on a therapeutic journey, even sometimes in therapy, like I feel like it was almost even too much to reveal. What if they report me and what if, you know, I am placed in the system? I know Amade touched on that as well. So I think it's a stigma of like, it's a great discussion within, you know, like society and acceptability of this topic. But I also think you have to destigmatize a lot in your own mind as well to be able to really address it and focus on it. There's still so much work to be done because I feel like even now, as we're openly talking about this, there is still some, even for me, like some reservation and like going into the ins and outs of like how I truly feel about, you know, my suicidality and how I've dealt with it and how I've experienced it. It's just all about, you know, like these discussions, like, this are just so important because you know speaking with you guys as well like i have zero friends that i've talked about you know with this that have shared you know ideation or you know active or passive you know suicidal thoughts so this is like even just an eye-opening experience for me like i'm experiencing this in a completely brand new way and it's really i'm really appreciative of it as well i feel like i'm also going to be learning a lot through this dis this discussion yeah and i just want to thank you all for being here not only just to talk about this but you know, being suicidal sucks and it's hard to get through. So thank you all for being here in that way as well. Yeah, I think that I think you bring up such an important point that like stigma really does start with yourself a lot of the time. And it's it has to do with the way you've been talked about it in your life if you haven't been talked about it in your life. So I think that's such, a, such an important distinguisher too is like that. Sure, it can make a lot of sense to like get help. But like if it's not been destigmatized, it doesn't either that that thought doesn't come to you or you just think doing something wrong so yeah amari were you about to say something yeah i just gonna talk about just i grew up in a very religious environment 
the expectation that once someone lays hands on you, you're automatically cured. Or once you pray, you're automatically cured. The conversation around suicide in my community was basically, you're going to hell. You know, if you kill yourself, you're going to hell. I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music, so I listened to Christian hip hop. And um, there was a rapper who died by suicide. And a lot of the comments were like, well, he's going to hell. Well, too bad. Sorry, that sucks, you know. And that's the culture that some of us have been brought up in. And so it makes perfect sense that we are afraid to enter that society, into that world to talk about our suicide ideation. And that's kind of what I dealt with in some ways when I started talking about suicide. But I do want to say that personally, for my experience, uh, structural racism and ableism has harmed me way more than stigma. Because once you start finding your tribe, some of that stigma kind of falls away. I am talk openly about suicide online and sometimes it's it's better for it's I've experienced more benefits talking about suicide openly on Twitter than I've had calling a suicide prevention hotline. Like I've had experiences openly talking about suicide and feeling like, oh my gosh, like I cannot believe this, but I'm starting to feel better. Once that stigma starts to drop away, in, at least in my life, I started to be fearful of the structural racism that happens and how Black folks are more likely to be hospitalized and have other forms of severe interventions than white folks. When I started to ask for help, I started to realize why people don't. And I started to see that after my first suicide attempt, I started to see why people don't do this because there's a structure that punishes people for being suicidal. And after my first a suicide attempt, I was told to go to this hospital that they said was really great. And the social worker pulled up a blog post that I wrote about my suicidal thoughts. It was in a jokey way. It was a hilarious suicide letter. And I had all these jokes about how my funeral was gonna be. Just like, I wanted the fried, I, I told them what fried chicken I wanted. And even though, like, I know on the surface level, you're like, oh, my gosh, this girl, <laughs> like, get like savor, you know, that that blog post actually was super lighthearted. And like, I felt so much better after writing it. But that was used to keep me into a, in a hospital where I was physically restrained. I was threatened with drug injection and I was thrown into an isolation room, which is basically solitary confinement for psychiatric hospitals. And so as I started to like realize this, I said, I would rather have someone tell me I'm going to hell than me like being threatened to go into solitary confinement into a psychiatric hospital. So I kind of do want to express that for a lot of black folks, we're, we're more afraid of like the police coming to kill us than somebody saying a bad word about us. This is life or death for us when it comes to dealing with structural racism and dealing with ableism that we experience after we say we're suicidal. And so it can get really scary. And sometimes we don't even get to the psychiatric hospital. We're funneled to the police. We're funneled to jail, mm -hmm. you know? And that's what that was also my experience as well. When I first told uh, my mental health counselors I'm dealing with suicidal thoughts, you know, they told me I need to get into the back of a, a cop car and I need to go to the hospital and I need to quit my program, my graduate program, which would have taken away all my insurance. I don't want to scare people because, like, I have the right diagnosis. I have a great therapist. I don't want to scare people. I I use mental health services every day. But I also want to say that sometimes I feel like the conversation is so focused on stigma that we're not actually talking about the very real structural racism and white supremacy that Black people with suicidality 
experience every, you know, every day. Yeah, I think that that is such an important point to bring up because, you know, like like we said earlier, we want a one-size-fits-all solution, but that's not realistic, right? When you have uh, cultural layers, I know, Matt, you were talking a little bit about, you know, growing up in an Asian family as well, and, and it wasn't talked about in your family culturally as well. We add these extra barriers to getting help, and getting help then is a barrier in itself. And that is, that is, I agree, such an important topic we need to be addressing because we can't even... We, we can't have two people next to each other and assume that we're going to be able to help and support them in the same way. That's not realistic. We each come from our own backgrounds, our own experiences, our own our own life. And we need to, you know, be culturally competent when we are jumping into these sorts of services and not just, you know, see people are suicidal. Here's an X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, similar thing happened to my older sister. She was diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic and she had a couple episodes leading up to a big one where my mother, she just completely did not sympathize or understand what my sister was going through. So they got into an argument and my sister threw a rock through the window and then my mom called the police. The police showed up. My sister grabbed a shard of glass and ran off into an alley. And so they had to chase her down, put her in the back of a cop car. And then she was 5150. And sadly, she never really truly got the help that she really needed. I know she struggled for a long time and still does. Yeah, even from coming from in the home, from that cultural misunderstanding to the way that the police can handle these situations, it's just so ugly and it's so, how does that help a suicidal person to lock them up and make them feel crazier? It's something that really needs to be addressed and fixed because this is happening all over the country and like people are getting shot and killed over this and you know, people of color, this is happening, you know, every day, like, it's just truly disgusting, you know, how we approach mental health and anyone who has any sort of ties to suicidality, or like anyone that has like, you know, attempted things on their life or had or even almost attempted. So for yeah. sure, there are lists now, uh, there's an amazing law professor, She's been compiling uh, her studies in suicidality, and and she's been compiling a list of non-emergency services in each state. The only reason I found that is because there was a conversation about racism and how white supremacy affects uh, Black people who are searching for help. And she replied to the thread, and that is how I now have access to this Excel spreadsheet, which I've been sending around everywhere. Why is that how I have access to that, right? Like, why is that right. not more discussed? I see all over my my town and my county, they love, I don't know if this is happening in other counties, but in New Jersey, they love saying blank town is stigma-free, stigma-free in blank blank. And I'm like, what does that mean? So I, I went to one of these stigma-free meetings, and this is not to diminish the work that these people are doing, because it is like basically what we all described, that is an uphill climb. But, you know, what they were what they were talking about, there is still so much room to go. Like they're talking about we're gonna declare this town stigma-free, and they're just starting to work and Sorry, this was two years ago, so I hope they've made more progress, but they were just starting to work on training police for mental health situations. That was in, in 2019. And I hope we're further now, but those stupid signs were around for four years and they just started training police two years ago. 
I don't know where, right? Okay, we're all laughing. Okay, just so if everybody can't see us, we're laughing. It's 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 ridiculous. It is, it's ridiculous. Like you can't slap a sign on something and say, all right, you know, we fixed racism. We'll, we fixed we'll do the we work fixed now that we put a label on the yeah. fact that we've we fixed <laughs> right. it. And now we'll, now we'll do the work. All better now. And, and partly it has a lot to do, <laughs> right. I, I mean, better late than never, I guess. But it partly also has to do with like, this is how we get funding. Like, it's all broken. It's all broken. This is how we get funding for stuff. We have to say, here's the problem. We fixed it. Okay, now can we have money to actually fix it? It's not great. I do believe it's getting better. It's unfortunate to me that I don't think it's getting better because of government initiatives. I think it's getting better because of small community initiatives, because of nonprofits. That is where I'm seeing progress and work. And it is so small. It is huge, but it is so small compared to how big the problem is. And we need so much more community organization for us to actually resolve the issue on the scale that it needs to be resolved. I don't want to discourage anybody, but I also just want to make clear that like nobody walk away from this thinking like oh four people came on and talked about suicide that's it right this is it we fixed because <laughs> we we haven't we're very far from that yeah i think this is a good time too i really want to spend a lot of the rest of our time talking about support that support factor right like what you were just getting into about there are a lot of these you know grassroots organizations nonprofits. profits we are making progress in that space what do we feel like needs to happen in you know i know there's a lot of different nuance in these spaces but what are some of the things that that need to happen moving forward in order to make progress on a larger scale i feel like we need a uh, police-free crisis teams and I'm just really encouraged by seeing the movement uh, happen across the country. It saves money, reduces the burden on 911 and other emergency systems. It works. And I'm so excited to see it getting rolled out in places like Oakland and Sacramento. It's happening. And I think that's what we really need. I disclosed to my therapist my former therapist, that I was struggling. And I went to sleep and took a depression nap, which is what we all do. It's part of our culture, nap life. And I woke up to two police officers um, at my house doing a wellness check. And some people don't understand and realize that when the police come into your house, you're being outed. And so I didn't know if I would be able to stay at that apartment because they, they don't know if the police came for a suicidality or if I committed a crime. I don't want anybody to go through that fear because in that moment, what even if the police are trained in mental health services, you know, I'm glad that they do have some training. It doesn't account for the power differential that they have. It's very difficult to disclose to someone who has a gun. I'm just being really honest, being really truthful. And so a lot of us, we want to talk about suicide and we want to feel safe. We want to feel as if we get more support. And so I think for me, the police-free uh, crisis team movement that's happening, I think that's definitely what we need. Uh, we also need uh, peer support respite centers. We need that everywhere. Uh, peer support respite centers are places where you can drop in when you're not feeling well. It's staffed by uh, peers that have lived experiences with mental health challenges. Uh, you can stay and it's voluntary. You're not forced to be there, uh, but it's in a home-like environment. And for people like me who have chronic suicidal ideation. We know that the suicidal thoughts will pass, but we need a place to stay 
so that we don't harm ourselves and we don't have that that threat and that fear that looms over us. And so some of us, we can't go to uh, psychiatric hospitals because we never know when we're going to get out and we can lose our jobs if they force us to stay there for too long. We may even lose our children because we can't care for our kids and they may keep us in there. We need more peer run warm lines. Uh, these are non-crisis phone support lines staffed by peers with lived experience. And you can talk to them about your mental health challenges. The hotlines sometimes are really one-sided, which can also create a power differential. You, being able to just have a simple conversation can really diffuse a lot of mental health stress. So I just think we really need to focus on peer support and what we do. I think that's yeah, all super, super important. I do agree. And I also want to bring up, so I work in entertainment. Part of my job is also doing entertainment PR. And I recently took on a client. First, I represented him for his commuter career, but then I found out he was actually a licensed therapist. And he is opening this new clinic, uh, which just opened in Canada, which is their DBT center, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And so a lot of what they focus on includes suicidal ideation and suicidal allergies or self-harm and things like that. And I had found, you know, because I brought them, I started this campaign last month and I was leading up to this month for Suicidal Prevention Month and Awareness Week. And I found that I put in a very bold pitch headline about this specific month. And yeah, a lot of media outlets just straight up, you know, ignored it. And a lot of places, I think, are still so afraid to just even discuss and bring more awareness to it. Because sure, like mental health is a big topic now. But I feel like the mental health that we publicly discuss is like, oh, I'm anxious at my job. <laughs> or like, oh, I'm nervous about dating again. The greater public in the media space at large is still afraid to approach these subjects because it is still so tricky and I totally get that. But as long as they are gatekeeping these topics from people that need to hear it, like it'll continue to be that way. So I would love to see, especially for my space, it's the space I work in and what I understand. And I think it would do such a huge service to people if the media uh, would be more open and receptive to this month and talking about suicide and allowing people like us, other experts, other professionals to have the space to really openly discuss re-entering society during a time when a lot of us want to kill ourselves. I think it just shouldn't be on Simone Biles and other athletes for Michael Phelps. And I, I can't remember the, the tennis athlete now. Naomi Osaka. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, it shouldn't be. <laughs> it shouldn't be on Naomi. It shouldn't be on these people to be spearheading. But that is what's happening. And Matthew, you bring up a really, really good point that the media is not talking about it unless it's making the money. Right. Mm -hmm. And or if it's like mental health light. Yeah, it has to be like the right amount of like it has to be very yeah. romantic, right? Like I remember mm -hmm. bubble baths, you know. Yeah. Um, it's for self-care. <laughs> yeah, I remember the headlines that were made by um again, I'm terrible with names, uh by the actress who played in 50 Shades of Grey where she was like I'm I have mental health issues, but like also not really. They're not a big deal. And that made headlines and that is like, that's that's where we are right now. My favorite, my least favorite is, you know, somebody passes away from suicide and we get the, oh my God, please go to the hotlines, please. Like you go on Twitter mm. and it's just call the hotlines, call the hotlines, you know, like that's, that's 
what you see and hear for like a week and then everybody's fine. Right. Cause like death does sell. And then it's like sensational death headline. And it's like, Oh, by the way, here's a hotline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A huge difference was made by the fact like there's research behind the fact that like shows like Will and Grace made a huge difference to acceptance of gay people, right? Like I want to see not mental health light in TV shows where like, oh, somebody was depressed, but they went to a therapist. Look, they're all fine. We're never going to talk about it again in another episode. Or, you know, 13 Reasons Why, like, oh, revenge, depression, like, and suicidality. Like, I don't want to see that. I want to see friends, but they're all not well. That's I want to see that like, oh, yeah, I was suicidal today. What? OK, well, let's not call the like I want to see that. I want to see it brought up the way it is for normal people, because I live the rest of my life when I am not in crisis. Super, super normal and super boring. I walk my dog. I pick up his poop. You know, like I, I put on my pants in the morning like I it's super, super boring and not entertaining. And I don't want my crisis to be the thing that you pay attention to. I want the things that are good, the, the good days, as well as the reality of mundane, I'm no monotony, mundaneness of what mental health becomes to people who live with it chronically. I want to see that. It's yeah, it's just a, it's just as common as like, OK, how do I take care of my mental health today? What do I yeah. eat today? Like, you know, it's it's that same like level of conversation at a certain point. Uh, there is something I want to bring up, too. So I know like if you're on Twitter, or, like if you're in Gen Z spaces or whatever, like, have you guys noticed that, you know, saying something like, I just want to die or I just want to kill myself has become almost like a buzzword amongst like younger people, like on the flip side of not wanting to talk about suicide. There are people that kind of have kind of say those things as almost like a meme in a way, like as a thing that's like really funny and like silly, which sure, there can be some humor in the darkness. But I think it's important to even bring up like in that culture, in the youth culture, and especially I think it trickles up as well, that it's easy to like, you know, joke about mental health in a completely non-helpful, supportive way, if that makes in sense. In a dismissive, dismissive way. Dismissive way, yes, yes, yes. Where it's like non-discussion of suicidality. And then there's like the dismissive, like jokey internet tone of suicide alley and i think that that's something and interesting to discuss and figure out as well because i think that can also be a little bit harmful even though it brings like some levity lightheartedness and like you know i know a lot of younger people now are experiencing more you know mental health issues than ever but i think it bears you know some attention that there should be you know like at least more understanding and more sensitivity to that so that someone else doesn't, you know, possibly get triggered by that sort of flippant discussion of it as well. Yeah. How do we how do we have um, conscious conversations about this topic in a way that is truly going to help and educate people so that if they are in that same, you know, same boat that they they have something helpful, you know? So I do want to make sure that we are giving our audience some support ideas. So I want to ask, how can we support loved ones if they come to us and say, hey, I'm feeling suicidal, I'm having suicide ideation, what? And now I, I know we've, I know a lot of the time it can feel very overwhelming if you are put in that situation, but it's very important to have those conversations if that's something your loved one needs to have with you. So what, what can we do to support them when those situations come up? I think there's two sides to that, right? So from from one side, 
I think it is so important to teach people consent. You need to make sure that the other person consents to you going to talk about the feelings you're experiencing, the trauma, the whatever you're experiencing. The other person has to consent to listening to that because, again, we don't know where people have been or where they're going or how they're feeling right now. So I feel like that isn't brought up enough because the flip side of that is, yeah, we need to be sitting down and we need to be listening and we need to be treating these conversations with the respect and the dignity that they deserve. What I want to see in support, I want people who come to me to know that aren't my loved ones to know that I am not the right resource and I will send you to an appropriate resource based on what I know about you. And I want you to offer me the opportunity to do that instead of trauma dumping and just telling me, here's my life story. It's not good. And I don't know if that'll trigger all of your memories about how terrible things were for you, but here it is. I need to put it somewhere. The other side of that is that means that people need to know where to go. So in terms of support, I want people to be more aware of the nonprofits that are out there, not just of the suicide hotline, of the multiple, multiple, multiple options that are there, whether that's the non-emergency phone number, you know, non-911 phone number in your state, or that is the Black mental health nonprofit or the Asian mental health nonprofit. Like, I want people to learn about passive and active suicidality I want people to learn about it in school and be aware of it just as much as they learn about, you know, stupid nonsense that they don't need or will never use. I want them to know about that. And I want people to be trained like mental health first aid should be something that more people have access to so that when somebody comes to you, you don't maybe rightfully freak out but go, I know what to do. I know what to do the same way, or at least I know somebody who has the training who can. The same way first aid, like regular first aid is a regular thing. Mental health first aid should be available to people so that they they just know what to do in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I also would say if someone's really interested, they should definitely uh, look into peer support training. BEAM is an amazing Black-led nonprofit, and they do uh, Black mental health peer support training. And they teach this amazing model. And I'm actually graduated their peer support training. And they teach a model called uh, LAPIS, peer support model. L is for listen and assess for distress or harm. A is affirm their experience. P is partner to navigate care and seek services. I is initiate self and community care plans and S is seek out help as needed. And so there are nonprofits out there that will train you so that you can understand and learn consent-based support of folks who deal with suicidality. So you don't have to recreate the wheel that's already been made. And so I definitely encourage folks to reach out and get trained for for peer support. Um, And I definitely uh, want to emphasize the importance of building in self-care and community care when you do support people with suicidality, because it's very easy to get burnt out supporting us. Just keep it in real, especially for folks who have chronic suicide ideation. And so I definitely have lost friends. I have absolutely lost friends because I develop a codependent relationship. I thought that if they didn't pick up the phone, I would die. 
which is super unhealthy. I expected my friends to be my therapist. And so it's so important to create boundaries, healthy, sustainable, long-term boundaries when you do support people with suicidality so that they know when to seek professional help and when to seek your help. I want all of us with suicidality to have healthy, long-term, lifelong relationships. And that absolutely requires self-care and community care, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones. Absolutely. I do want to share, um, we, we asked our Instagram community, how do they seek support in their life? And one of the comments I wanted to share was, sometimes it's uh, helpful to ask me what's going through my brain. I have a one to three scale to tell friends where I'm at without having to explain it. So one means I'm an actively suicidal. It's a crisis situation. A two means passively suicidal, not a crisis, but probably shouldn't be left alone. And three is just kind of thoughts about it just need some distraction when I simply need to be distracted. It's helpful to buy me ice cream, sit with me, watch a movie or go to Target. And I just thought that was such a that's such a wonderful way of how to like have those conversations with your friends. And then like, you know, you get to the point where you are in that situation. You're like, I have this really, really easy symptom that just requires, you know, the person in crisis to say one number and the person knows what to do if, if you know, they're available for that support. So I think that's just such a, a wonderful method this user uses. Oh, that's really cool. That's really amazing. I, I think I might even adopt that as well. <laughs> I do think it's really important to to touch on what Amadi was saying, to not rely on friends as free therapy. And I think a lot of people make that mistake, definitely setting those boundaries and coming up with a way to communicate with people that you trust about this topic is so important. And I also do want to shout out the DBT Center, and that's specific to anyone listening in Vancouver. They are, I believe, the second one on that coast to offer that sort of therapy, and especially in the Fraser Valley area. And they also offer Mandarin speaking service. So, so I definitely encourage a lot of my own Asian community to seek out help. But I think it's important to find care and service that does line up with your own identity and your own experience because not every therapist or specialist will fully understand you culturally and there's some nuances that they just won't get and i also you know i'd love to shout out the los angeles lgbt center i think it's important as queer people to definitely seek help i think that we are more often than not recipients of a lot of trauma and a lot of misunderstanding and i think it's important as queer people to really you know take a step back and address mental health and to really take inventory of our experiences and how we can use that as a source of empowerment versus a source of trauma and pain and important to definitely connect with help that aligns with your cultural experience and also your sexual or gender identity as well absolutely so I do want to start rounding out the conversation a bit. We have wonderful resources. I'm going to make sure that we are putting these available for everyone who's listening so that they can easily access all these wonderful nonprofits and organizations you've highlighted. So I do want to jump into our self-care corner here, which I know I joked about bubble baths, but self-care is very important. So how do you cope when you are dealing with suicidal ideation? I know that the spectrum of that can vary. So if you want to talk to a specific level of that or, you know, an overall, whatever makes sense to you. For me, even before the pandemic, I was going through a lot of, you know, really dark thoughts and really heavy thoughts of suicide. Right in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I pretty much lost work and money and almost everything. And 
was just on a complete downward spiral. And after a while, I did kind of pick myself up a little bit and I was able to have a little bit more financial support coming my way, which I was very grateful for in terms of programs and services I was able to take to to use. And then I did settle into uh, a routine. I started to find, you know, peace and comfort in a routine of like waking up and doing my morning smoothie, walking my dog and also getting into exercise did help a lot. And also going back to the alien question, but I did actually find a lot of hope and comfort in (laughs) K-pop. It's so like saccharine crazy with like the sound and the music and the colors. Like it actually took me away from a lot of those dark thoughts. So it was kind of a nice substitute escape from that. I feel like settling into a routine, I found it to be very helpful whenever I felt out of control. I just, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Like if (laughs) K-pop works for you, like endorsed 100%. It do be working. <laughs> gotta get on that BTS. <laughs> All right, Maria or Imade? Uh, I can go. Um, so, in terms of like when I'm in an active crisis situation, at that time, I usually need to know when, uh, like, I will try to figure out when is the soonest way time I could speak to my therapist. Like if I know I'm starting to get back into that thought process. So I'll, I'll try to do that. I also have people in my network that I can talk to without using them as therapists. But there are people that I can go to without giving them details and telling them everything I'm feeling. And so that's really important to me. And then I have a list of stuff that seems really small, but makes a big difference. So finding my dog and attacking him with cuddles, huge, huge difference. Going to my husband and asking him usually to tell me something positive or to remind me why he loves me or remind me why I'm here and why I'm important to him. He also now like knows that that's like, hey, something else is going on. And he'll go through then the steps that he knows we have. We'll go take a drive. The Target thing just resonated so much with me because we will go to Target. (laughs) I'm very, very grateful. I am in a place where I can do things that proactively help me not get there. I recently interviewed Catherine Gordon and she made a a suicide prevention workbook. And one of the things in her workbook, which I swear like changed so much for me, it was uh, making importance collage. So you make a collage of things that matter to you. She has a just put stuff down that are basically reasons you'll stay. I just copy pasted stuff that I know like are my intentions are things that keep me here are things that keep me going. And that is something that's actually really helpful. I did that once outside of a crisis and once within the crisis. And it was very grounding. I know that I have proactive steps. So that is taking a routine. That is I have a list of things. I call them your good day list. So it's not it's not like the best day where you have an ice cream and there was a carnival, but and it's not like the worst day where you just sat around under a blanket. Like what are regular comforts that I need that make for like a decent day where I can look back and be like, that day was pretty good, right? And so I will play Tetris. That is a huge coping mechanism for me. Read, sit under a weighted blanket. Again, cuddle my dog, go walk with my dog. So those are all things that I can, if my brain is totally in like emotional overload, I can go to that list to say, okay, what have I not done yet? Okay, I I didn't try playing Tetris. That does make me feel better. Let me try doing that. I didn't try coloring yet. Let me try doing that. And so I have that list that I can, that I usually go through. 
I love that you have a, a list for that. I think that's such an important, in the sense that like that can be really beneficial. Just write down things that make you happy, things that bring you yeah. joy. You don't know yeah. how helpful it can be in those moments to just like have the words in front of you so you don't have to try to think of it yourself. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm grateful for what Matthew said about DBT. DBT saved my life. I dealt with the mental health system for about off and on for eight years. And it took me that long to get the right diagnosis of uh, BPD and the right treatment. But what I love about DBT is that it is not trying to kind of preach to you about what you should do when you're in crisis. Basically, you know, I get it. I know that you're so dysregulated. So I'm not even going to ask you to analyze your thoughts in this moment. And so what you do when you're in crisis is a tip skill and it's physical activity to try to help you deescalate your emotions. And so basically you do something super dramatic. It's like you're, you just got to pretend you're in a soap opera. And the cool thing about being in mental health crisis, you already are dramatic. So it's like perfect, right? And so the tip skill, the first, the T is temperature. So you basically get cold water and you splash it on your face and you can do it any way you want it. But you splash cold water on your face like you are just in a soap opera in Dallas or something like that. And then you do intense exercise. And that is basically to expend all that energy that the, the emotional dysregulation is giving you. And then you do paired uh, muscle relaxation. So you kind of tighten your muscles, then you release them and you pair that with deep breathing. So you maybe hold your fist in and you hold your, your breath. And then when you release your fist, you release your, your breath and you do that to kind of calm down and to kind of bring yourself back to a, a lower level. So if you're at a 10, the hope is that after you do tip, you may be at a seven, at a six, at a five. And then once you get down to that level, then you're able to do other like what's typically called higher level skills that will help you get to a place where of more stability. And like uh, Marie was saying, like improve the moment is a, is another DBT skill. If you need to figure out, okay, I'm I'm on a lower at a lower number when it comes to my crisis level. Now I can think about, okay, let me watch a funny show because that's that's something that can help my my mood and, and it's opposite of how I'm feeling. I know there's a stigma about people with BPD that we are ridiculous, that we are the crazy ex girlfriend. There's literally a TV show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, where Rachel Bloom, the main character, has my condition. So DBT has saved my life and has kept me from making the situation worse. And for some folks in crisis, that's all we need to do. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to save the world. All you have to do is not make the situation worse. And DBT gave me that ability and that power. So I'm super grateful for that. I love that. And I just want to really point out that all of your answers were very different. And I think that's such a good thing because there is no wrong way to cope. If it makes you feel better, it makes you feel better, whatever that looks like for you. And I just think that's such a wonderful kind of message of hope. So our final question we always love to end our podcasts on is what made you feel mighty this week? Um, I can start. I took this weekend to really just rest and, and relax and work on crafts. And that was honestly just like, I have a lot of things I need to be doing. I have responsibilities, appointments, whatever I need to be making, but I needed this weekend to like just be in my own zone doing something, not e not doing anything of consequence because that was the recovery I needed this weekend. And I feel better for having done it. And I'm really grateful to myself that I was like being kind to myself and let myself do that. So that that's mine for, for this week. Can I be really, I'm gonna redeem the cheese card and say this conversation 
is huge highlight. It made me feel powerful listening to all of you and share your experiences made me feel not alone. It, I learned a bunch. I like, this makes me feel so powerful and mighty. And I absolutely love that. Yeah. I'm sorry if that was anybody else's <laughs> answer, <laughs> but it, it's a really good chat and it really makes me feel empowered. So thank you everybody. I'm going to steal both your answers <laughs> and say that, yes, this weekend of complete nothingness definitely set me on a pretty good path this week. I feel like I do feel rested. I feel my mind is a little bit clearer. And I will say that having this chat, which I'll be completely honest, I was so nervous about <laughs> having to speak about all this and speak about so openly. I do feel there's a weight off. And I think that learning from all of you guys and your answers and your experiences, I definitely feel like I have taken away a little bit tips and methods and your experiences. And I will take that with me on my journey and apply it towards a lot more healthy coping practices as well. I love it. Like actually talking about suicide, it makes me feel better. I don't know how, but like it just does. And like talking about it, I just felt so energized uh, listening to you all share your experiences. I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is what I'm meant to do. And I think for some mental health advocates, you feel like this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is the purpose for why I go through so much pain and suffering is to talk about it so that we can heal as a community. So I'm just so grateful to be here and to draw from everyone's strength. And I'm absolutely going to take your coping skills. Like I'm absolutely going to apply them. And I'm just, man, I'm just so excited and so honored to be a part of this conversation. You guys are absolutely amazing. And so are you and everyone else. <laughs> yeah. All the big round of applause for everyone here. All right. So now where can people learn about your work and what you do and follow up with all of the amazing advocacy work that you guys um, are doing every day? Well, I just want to say, yeah, one of the things that made me mighty, uh, made me feel mighty this week is that I teamed up with Miriam Kaba, an amazing abolitionist, as well as uh, Carlita, who is executive director of Darkness Rising and Beam. Shout out to Beam. So we all teamed up together to fundraise uh, for Rebuild. Uh, Rebuild is a Help Me Find a Therapist program where we're going to connect 5,000 formerly incarcerated folks to therapy. It has raised over $80,000 in just one week. And we are super grateful and overwhelmed by the kindness and outpouring of generosity that people have given to us. We just want to keep it going. So we're going to start this program. Miriam came, came to us and basically said, what I'm hearing over and over again is that folks who get released from prison, they want to be healed from that trauma. They want to have therapy and it's very difficult to access it. Um, and so we want to remove that barrier because the, the stigma is is really it's I think it's being reduced in a lot of ways, but the access is not there is not where it's supposed to be. And so we just want to make it possible. What we're going to be doing is the money that we are fundraising is going to pay for therapy sessions for folks who have been uh, released from incarceration. It's also going to pay for staff members. We, we want to have part time staff who are also formerly incarcerated themselves and have lived experience with mental health challenges, they're going to be helping their peers, their their community find therapists of color. The fundraiser is at bit.ly and it's in all capital, bit.ly slash rebuild in all capitals 2021. Again, it's bit.ly backslash rebuild in all capitals 2021. And yeah, we're going to make this happen. And I'm just so proud of our community. We're doing this. 
Yes. How can anybody follow that up? That's amazing. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Unless I feel you're like, like I feel like she sold the show. Yeah, I'm building a country where mental health isn't a problem anymore. So I just That's casually amazing. raised eighty thousand dollars. Right. And like, oh, wonderful. And I'm going to be like, work. follow my Instagram, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I guess you can follow my Instagram. <laughs> I've actually done a lot of work with The Mighty. I've written some articles with them and I've led some discussions with them. So I've always been happy to be involved in discussions like this and being able to further any awareness or talks about suicidality or LGBTQ or Asian American mental health subjects. I also recently, as for my PR job, I recently got a comedy show which featured all Asian Americans into the LA Times and Aiden Park. Part of his act, he does discuss his own experience with attempting to take his own life and he has a really really funny bit so I encourage people to check him out as well because he does talk about it in a way that's it's deep but it's very funny as well so I love that he did that and I was very proud to work with them love it Whew. okay uh, I just have a website uh, I'm on Twitter a lot M X I E T Y. it's like anxiety but instead of an A N it's an M I have a Twitch channel where I interview mental health professionals and when I'm not doing that I also play video games I write a lot of my writing is on the mighty but if you check out my website anxiety.com that'll link you out to all the things including resources that if you're just lost and don't know where to start it's I have a whole page of like just look at these and see if any of these work for you. Oh, I, I also wrote a book. It's all on the website, just anxiety.com. <laughs> Check it out. Stropping casually the, oh yeah, I just happened to write a book too. <laughs> like these accomplishments you all are getting, like we need bigger rounds of applause, bigger cheers for these. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is it for our show today. So I want to thank you all for joining me and having this conversation. I know it's not the easiest to talk about, but it's an important one. And it's one that I'm I'm so happy we got such different, but, you know, similar in a lot of ways experience represented here, because I feel like we all brought a little bit of something for the community here. And I'm just really thankful to have each of your voices represented. Thank you so much for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for disclosing your lived experience, you know, as well. It's super easy to interview people who have suicidality and not put any, you know, investment in your personal disclosure and experiences. So, like, that was super huge. I think it's rare for me to talk to somebody about suicidality and they, and they disclose as well. So, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. All right, so thank you for listening to this episode of The Mighty Podcast. If you want to continue the conversation, head over to themighty.com or download The Mighty app to become part of our community. We'd love for you to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or if you're listening on The Mighty, give this page a heart. Join us on our next episode and stay mighty.